And for the rest of us this morning, if you have your copy of the scriptures, we're going to be continuing through our study through the gospel according to John. We'll be right there in the middle of John chapter 18, starting in about verse 28. And we have a ton of ground to cover this morning. We're going to finish chapter 18 and actually go into about the first half of chapter 19. So what I thought I'd do this morning before we kind of get into the text line by line is actually kind of diagram sort of the literary flow of the text this morning, just to kind of give us sort of a roadmap, if you will, of where we're going to be going. Because the way John has sort of orchestrated the text and how he's told this story between Jesus and Pilate, it's literary genius. It's almost as if John had some help or something as he was writing this text. So what we're going to see this morning is that the text is actually going to Uh, be broken up into two equal halves. So half one at the top, half two at the bottom. And each half is going to have three sort of mini episodes corresponding to the boxes here. So just to kind of diagram this out to start, Pilate is going to be the first character we'll see in this scene. And Pilate is going to be throughout. But Pilate is going to be interacting with the Jewish leaders or the crowds. That's meant to be crowds there. And then what happens And that's the first episode. What happens in the middle episode is that Pilate then transitions back to talk solely just with Jesus. So the middle episode, Jesus in the center there. But then the third episode of the first half, Pilate and the crowds will dialogue once again. So it essentially just goes crowds, Jesus, crowds, with Pilate interacting throughout all of that. But the interesting thing is that this exact same pattern is going to repeat itself in the second half below. So again, Pilate and the crowds will have their sort of interaction there. And then Jesus and Pilate, as Pilate goes back into his headquarters, will talk once again there. And then to cap it all off, Pilate and the crowds will once again talk here. Now, one last thing before we get into the text is that what's kind of interesting is that this first half, the main idea, the main kind of thrust of this section is going to center around the idea of truth. What is truth? What is biblical truth actually all about? And then the second half will have this main idea of power. So truth and power, those are sort of the two big ideas as we kind of work through this text line by line. Now, as I kind of make my way through here without tripping, if that at all is confusing to you or you're, it doesn't all make sense, no stress, no worries. As we go through this, I'll keep referring back to the whiteboard. And there's also going to be some slides behind me to kind of help us as we go through. So with that said, let's start with, in our story, chapter 18, verse 28. This is going to be episode, or part one, episode one. The text says this. Then they, so that's the, the crowds, the Jewish leaders, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Verse 29. So Pilate then goes outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. Now, just kind of pause right there. Notice the attitude. There's a little bit of smugness on the part of the crowds. They're like, why would we waste your time, Pilate? If this man really hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't be wasting your time. We wouldn't have brought him to you in the first place. But the story continues. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own 
law. Now notice, pay attention to this. The Jews said back to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put him to death. This was to fulfill the kind of death Jesus spoke of about how he was going to die. Now, notice sort of the irony here. All throughout this section that we'll look at this morning, if you can spot the irony that John is trying to communicate, you're going to see that the contrast that John is trying to make between Jesus and the other parties involved. What I mean is this. In that section that we just read, on one hand, the crowds, the Jewish leaders, are trying to be obedient to their own law. They don't want to go into the governor's headquarters so that they won't get defiled, so that they can still eat the Passover. They don't want to be the ones that, you know, tangibly, physically kill Jesus because they have a law themselves that says they can't put someone to death. So they're on one hand trying to obey the truth, yet at the exact same time, they're trying to weasel their way around, kind of create something in the system so that Pilate can do their dirty work for them. Truth for these crowds has become a matter of convenience. They've already established their end goal, their end desire. They want to get rid of Jesus. And this is what happens. When the end goal or the desire becomes supreme and becomes all that actually matters, then truth gets relegated to that of just being subjective, gets put off to the side, and just becomes a matter of convenience. On one hand, they claim to be wanting to follow the law, be obedient, but on the other hand, there's hypocrisy and just subjectivity all throughout this section. Now, that's sort of just the first episode of part one. Let's kind of transition now as Pilate then withdraws back to speak with Jesus, episode two of the first half. Our text picks up in verse 33. So Pilate enters his headquarters and called Jesus to him and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, am, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, pay attention to this, especially verse 36. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. See, Pilate sort of has this sneaky suspicion that Jesus is some sort of a king. He asks, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, are you really a king? Like, there's sort of like this disbelief on the part of Pilate. Because when Pilate thinks of king or kingdom, he has a very different idea than what Jesus is standing right there in front of him. When Pilate thinks king or kingdom, his, his mind is filled with Rome and Caesar. That's what kings and kingdoms look like. Caesar ruling with power and authority, manipulation and violence and domination. That's what kingdoms look like. Jesus standing in front of them, how could that be a king? He's homeless. He's poor. He has no finances. His closest followers have all abandoned him. How could this be a king? But notice how Jesus responds. My kingdom is not of this world. Meaning my kingdom, Pilate, does not operate like the kingdom of Rome or any other earthly kingdom. It doesn't have sort of the same drive or the same force behind it. If it did, Jesus says, my servants, they would be fighting. Earlier, just a few verses prior to this, 
Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And as he's being arrested, Peter takes out the sword and tries to cut off the servant's ear. And Jesus tells Peter, put back your sword. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom does not operate with the same parameters of violence and retaliation and manipulation and coercion. My kingdom has a different origin. Now, I want to pause right here, do a little bit of theology with you, and kind of communicate what Jesus is and is not saying when he says that line, my kingdom is not of this world. That's a fairly famous line from the Gospels. My kingdom is not of this world. And oftentimes that line, my kingdom is not of this world, kind of gets used to kind of mean something to this effect. Now, I'm going to kind of caricature this a bit, so forgive me, but just to kind of make a point. Oftentimes that line is often given this context of meaning, you know, Jesus' kingdom or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is something way up there in the clouds, something that only is in the future, and that's what ultimately matters. And for us on this kind of floating space rock, we're just kind of going to hunker down until we finally get to that kingdom someday, somewhere in the future. This life, eh, we're just here passing by until we get to somewhere better. That's exactly not what Jesus is trying to communicate here. When he says my kingdom is not of this world, he's saying it doesn't operate from the same systems and the same power structures that this world operates from. I love how N.T. Wright, he's probably one of my favorite New Testament scholars, how he puts it commenting on this passage. He says this, the point is that Jesus' kingdom does not come from this world. Of course it doesn't. The world, as we've seen again and again, is in John the source of evil and rebellion against God. Jesus is denying that his kingdom has this worldly origin and quality. He is not denying that it has this worldly destination. That's why he has said, Jesus, that he has come into the world himself. We'll see that in verse 37. And why he was sent and will send his followers into the world. His kingdom doesn't come from this world, but it is for this world. Now that last line is super important. That distinction, I want to just hone in on for a second. Jesus' kingdom is not from this world, but it is in fact for this world. That's why Jesus, earlier in his ministry, taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' kingdom is not from this world, but it most definitely is for this world. That's why then Pilate asks, verse 37, So you are a king? Now the you there, in verse 37, it's kind of, there's this emphatic sort of tone in the original language behind it. Pilate's like saying, so you are a king? With this disgust and disbelief in there. How could you think you are a king? You have no military. You have no finances. All of your closest friends have abandoned you. How can you think you are a king? But I love how Jesus responds here. Verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose, yes, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come, notice, into the world. There it is again. Heaven is invading earth. Jesus' kingdom is coming into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who listens to my voice, or everyone who is of the truth, listens 
to my voice. Now, there's, I wish I had more time, but there's so much going on in those short few verses. I just want to highlight two things in particular. First, Jesus' kingdom, he is saying, is a kingdom of truth. All throughout the gospel according to John, truth is like this mega theme that's just kind of running all throughout the gospel. It's like this kind of trail of breadcrumbs, if you will, kind of all the way through. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus talked about how the truth would set one free. Contrasting with the Satan, who is the father of lies, who has been lying from the beginning. But the truth of Jesus will set one free. John 14, just skip ahead a few chapters. Jesus says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. That Jesus declares to be truth in person in and of himself. And then just a few chapters later, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, John 17, as Jesus is praying to the Father. In his high priestly prayer, he prays about the disciples. He says to the Father, sanctify them, set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Jesus has come to bear witness to that which is ultimate reality. To show us what is truly good, right, and beautiful in the world. That if we see Jesus, in the language of Jesus himself, we see the Father. We see what exactly God is like in Jesus. And that as we trust Jesus and his character and his teachings, and we trust the truth of Jesus, we then begin to experience the abundant life Jesus said in John 10 that he came to bring. That's the first thing I just wanted to highlight. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Second thing, Jesus' followers are called to listen to his voice. Now this theme of listening to the voice of God is one of these big biblical themes that kind of gets traced all throughout the scriptures. When God's people listen to God's voice, good things tend to happen. And when God's people don't listen to God's voice, not so good things tend to happen. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are invited to trust the voice of God. But instead, Adam listens to other voices and sin enters the world. The accusation God brings against Adam in Genesis 3, you listen to another voice. It's the exact verbiage there. Later on in the biblical story, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham is invited to trust the voice of God. But instead of trusting the voice of God, Abraham listens to the voice of his wife, Sarah, takes things into his own hands, and disaster ensues. Aaron and the golden calf in the book of Exodus, Aaron is invited to trust the voice of God. But instead, the text says in in the Exodus account with the golden calf that Aaron listened to the voice of the people, listened to other voices as opposed to the voice of God. And for us as followers of Jesus, we too are invited to trust and to listen to and obey the voice of Jesus himself in our everyday life with God. Yes, there are so many other competing voices in the world, but the invitation for the follower of Jesus in his kingdom of truth is to listen Pay attention, follow the voice of Jesus. But as the story kind of continues here, notice Pilate's response. It's kind of this iconic line. Three words, what is truth? That could, I think, be summed up as the, the, the popular question of our culture today. What is truth? And I love what Jesus actually doesn't say. He just kind of stands there in silence. He doesn't say a word. And the question is, why is that? 
Why does Jesus not say anything? Well, I think one thing that's happening here is that right in front of Jesus is, or right in front of Pilate, excuse me, is the truth in person. Jesus earlier, again, John 14, declared himself to be the truth. Standing right in front of Pilate is the truth, but Pilate himself has his own version of truth. And as long as he wants to follow his own version of truth, he will be blind to the truth that is Jesus right there in front of him. Now, as Pilate kind of has this final interaction with Jesus, the story now is going to transition to episode three of the first half. So now we're at the top right section here on the whiteboard. Pilate's going to go back out to the crowds. Jesus is still in the headquarters, and Pilate's now going to interact with the crowds another time. Verses 38 to end of verse 4 of chapter 19. The text says this. After he said this, he, Pilate, went back outside to the Jews and told him, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They, the crowds, cried out again, saying, No, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, the irony here is about as thick as you can get in any portion of this text. Barabbas, he is a violent criminal. And the Jewish crowds, the Jewish leaders, they're, you know, from the very beginning of of our section here, they were trying to follow the law, to observe Passover, not defile themselves. But the irony is that they're willing to trade the nonviolent, innocent Jesus for Barabbas. And that now they, it has gotten so warped that because they've already decided the end game, they've already decided what they desire, what is actually true has just become a matter of personal preference and desire and has been put off to the side. And what's even more interesting is that Barabbas, that name means son of the father. Bar is son of. So like when you read through the Gospels, oftentimes Jesus will refer to Peter as Simon Bar Jonah. So Simon, son of Jonah. Bar is son of. Abba is father. Barabbas, his name means son of the father. But Jesus is the true son of the father. Jesus gets captive. He gets taken. He gets put on trial. He's the innocent one. Barabbas, he's the thief. He's a pseudo-son of the father. And that word thief, it's not as if like Barabbas like stole a pack of bubblegum in the Jerusalem market. That word thief is less taste in the original language. It means he's a violent sort of terrorist figure. And the irony is so thick, the extremes could not be further apart. The crowds are willing to take a violent terrorist as opposed to the enemy-loving Jesus of Nazareth. That's how much when truth gets put into a matter of convenience and preference, things can get that twisted. Now, with that, after the crowds declare that they want Barabbas, Pilate then is going to take Jesus and flog him. Let's read at the beginning of 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So the end of our first half here ends with Jesus being flogged and mocked. He gets the crown of thorns on his head, the purple robe. But then the story now is going to transition to the first part of the second half. Episode 1, half 2. Picking up in verse 4 of chapter 19. 
Again, Pilate's going to go out to the crowds and said to them, See, I am bringing out to you that you, may, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. All throughout this story, Pilate's going to kind of waver back and forth. Where there's part of Pilate that knows the truth, that Jesus is in fact innocent. But the other voices are going to eventually plague Pilate and turn Pilate around. Not for good. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now again, there's a little bit of irony going on here because at that moment when Pilate says, behold the man, it's meant to be sort of like this mockery kind of thing. Like behold the man, here he is. He's barely clothed, crown of thorns on his head, kind of mocking him as your, you know, quote, king of the Jews. But for you, the reader, you as a follower of Jesus, when you see that phrase, behold the man, it's at that moment right there that yes, you're supposed to stop. And yes, behold the man. This is who we worship. This is who we adore. This is who we serve. Behold the man. See, John is trying to create a contrast between the power of Pilate on one hand and the power that Jesus is displaying on another. See, Pilate on one hand is saying, behold the man, trying to to, to show his power of domination and subjugation and just putting Jesus down in what he thinks is his rightful place. Behold the man. Look how much stronger and more powerful Rome is compared to this peasant Jew from Galilee. But on the other hand, Jesus' power does not operate like that power. Jesus' power is about self-sacrificial love, trusting that the Father's love, yes, is in fact stronger than death itself. But as the story continues, notice verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them again, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered again, we have a law. Notice the irony here. And according to that law, we, he ought to die because he has made himself the, quote, son of God. Now notice Pilate's response here. Verse 8, when Pilate heard that statement referring to Jesus being declared the son of God, Pilate's response is then to cower and be more afraid. Now, the question is, what what just happened there? Why is Pilate all of a sudden even more afraid? Well, what's interesting is that that title, the Son of God, was also used for the title for the Roman Caesars. Caesar himself declared himself to be the Son of God. And what we can tell from history is that Pilate, as he's in Judea here at the time of Passover, I think for the most part, the Gospels kind of speak to this too. All Pilate's trying to do is just kind of keep the peace, make sure everything kind of goes smoothly in Jerusalem for Passover. There's no controversy going to happen. Pilate's just trying to do his job and then kind of get on with the next thing. But the moment he gets wind that Jesus is associated or declaring himself to be the, quote, son of God, that potentially poses a threat to Pilate in Rome. Because there already is a son of God if you're a part of the Roman Empire, and that is Caesar. And what happens here with Pilate is that because Pilate is operating out of human power and human authority, he then results or begins to act in fear. Because that's what human power does. Sooner or later, you begin to be ruled by fear and insecurity. 
Because human power is cancerous. It wants to take and take and take. And if you ever get to that point of actually gaining that human power in human ways, and that becomes threatened, then just watch fear and insecurity just flow out of a person. And that's exactly what's happening with Pilate right now. But as the story again transitions, we're going to move into the second episode of part two now. Jesus and Pilate again interacting here, starting in verse 9. Pilate then enters the headquarters again to talk to Jesus and says, where are you from? Pilate all of a sudden is going to have all these questions for Jesus, but Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to them, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority or the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it has been given to you from above. Notice how Jesus understands the origin of power, not to be coming from here with other humans, but from above, from God himself. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. See, similar to the middle section in part one where Jesus was talking about Pilate with this idea of truth, now Jesus is talking with Pilate in this middle section of the second half around this idea of power. Who actually has power here? Does Pilate have power with his Roman military and his force and his finances and all of his cohort that's standing there behind him? Or does Jesus have the true power where he's there barely clothed, crown of thorns, no followers, no finances, no home? John wants you, the reader, to look at this scene and invite you into that question. Who actually has power here? And by whose standard of power do you trust and do you rely on? Jesus says, you actually don't have power, Pilate. True power actually comes from above. Jesus earlier said in John 10, I lay my life down on my own accord. I have the power and authority to lay it down. I have the power and authority to raise it up again. See, Jesus is trusting that the Father's love is stronger than any human system of power and deception and manipulation. But the Father's love is stronger than death, and that motivates Jesus to trust and to lean into God's design of what is true and what is ultimately powerful in the world. Now, one last section, episode three of the second half. So now we're at the bottom right of the whiteboard there. Pilate then, verse 12, sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out to and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover. It was the sixth hour, and Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. Just like a few moments ago, earlier in chapter 19, Pilate said, behold the man. Here he says again, behold your king. It's again the same thing. Pilate means it as a way to mock, a way to ridicule, to kind of show his power in his own way. But for you, the reader, behold the king. Yes, you behold the king. This is what true power looks like. This is what true Jesus-shaped, servant-loving power 
looks like. Willing to stand in the place of the guilty. Willing to take on the sin of the world. Willing to go to the cross for the sins of you and I. This is the power of Jesus on full display. I think what John is inviting us to do here, as he compares and contrasts the power of Pilate and human power versus the Pilate of Jesus, is to ask ourselves the question, how do we operate with power in our own lives? You know, the Apostle Paul, a few decades after this, writes a letter to the church in Philippi and reminds the church in Philippi about this Jesus-shaped power where Paul says in Philippians 2, to have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. That though Jesus was equal with God, did not account equality with God as something to be grasped. And that's what human power does. It seeks to grasp. But Jesus laid that aside, emptied himself, becoming the form of a man, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's through that process of humility, of self-sacrificial love that Jesus displays and is given, the text would continue on in Philippians 2 to say, that because of that, God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every tongue on heaven and on earth and under the earth, will declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is who truly is king. That is what true power actually looks like. Now, that's sort of the text, kind of working through it line by line, taking it apart. Let's take just a few moments here and really hone in on practically, what does this look like in our everyday life with God? Now, we've kind of already addressed some of this, but it's basically the same two big ideas, truth and power. And how does truth and power begin to interface with our everyday life? So let's start with truth for a moment. I think for a lot of us, as I was thinking about this, that we have the tendency, and we live in a world where there's a bunch of different competing voices in our world today, trying to communicate what is true and not true, what is good and not good. And we interface with this all the time, whether it's at work, with friends, at school, whatever the case may be, all these competing voices. So I think perhaps maybe the invitation might be for us this week. Maybe take just a few minutes, five, ten minutes, in prayer, with Jesus, a little bit of silence, and just ask Jesus to speak into your life about the voices that have sway in your life, whether for good or for bad. And maybe do a little evaluation. Are those voices leading you closer to the person of Jesus, to the truth of Jesus? Are those relationships and ideas and things that come into your life pointing you closer to the truth of God and his character, or are they leading you astray? Because we all have these different relationships and these people. And how might we then abide in the truth of Jesus and remain in the truth of Jesus? You know, Psalm 1 talks about blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, meaning blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of these other competing voices of our culture. But instead, the blessed man or woman is the one who is like a tree planted next to the stream of living water. And in due season, their leaf does not wither, but their fruit begins to prosper and they begin to flourish as they delight in God's instruction, as they delight in God's truth. 
So what does it look like for you this week? Take five or 10 minutes before God and ask yourself that question. What voices are there in my life that either lead me closer to Jesus or lead me further from the person of Jesus and his truth? Second thing, the idea of power. Power. What does it mean to actually have power in life? And maybe a couple questions to ask yourself this week might have to do with this idea, where are you tempted to abuse power? Where are you tempted to maybe grasp for power in a way that doesn't align with Jesus-shaped power of self-sacrificial, self-giving love? You know, I think for everyone else, I think I could say for almost everyone in this room, that we all have a certain degree of influence and power in different relationships. Whether that's in a marriage or a friendship with a coworker, with someone from a class or just a relationship that you know, we all have a certain degree of influence and power. And the question for us is, might there be areas in your life where you're tempted to abuse that influence or tempted to abuse that power? Maybe grasp for something that really isn't yours or grasp for influence or attention or praise that really isn't yours to get. And maybe for, as I was thinking about this, even just last night, I was kind of praying through, reading through, over, uh, re-looking at my notes, just thinking about this idea. And maybe some of you think that you have no power at all, that there is absolutely no way you would say, I have any sort of power at all, that you actually feel the exact opposite, that you feel completely weak, with no authority and no influence and no power at all. And maybe even then still, there's a temptation to want to desire or grasp for power in some sort of earthly human kind of way. But I think the invitation is that to understand that in our weakness, God's power is made perfect and complete. Remember the, 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 the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul has that thorn in his flesh and God speaks to Paul and says to Paul, my power is made perfect, made complete in weakness. And Paul's response is, is to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what does it look like for you this week? Maybe even now as we transition into communion and worship in a few moments. To, de to declare and to admit our weakness before God, our frailty, our brokenness, and say, God, I need your power to work in and through my life. I need you to move and to shape me. I need you to take me from where I am to the person I know you are shaping me to become. I need your power in and through my life. You know, I want to invite the worship team to, to come up we're going to transition now into a time of response, a time of worship, a time of communion. And if those of you who are serving communion want to join me up here. As we think about the person and work of Jesus and this idea of truth and power, I think it's an appropriate response to remember Jesus and his work on our behalf.
the truth of that sacrifice, the power that Jesus displayed in his self-giving love for you and for me. And so as the worship team sings this next song, I want to invite all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come down the center aisle here. There'll be folks with the juice and the, and the bread up here to come down and to partake of the bread and the cup again. And to remember as individuals and as a community that we are again saying yes to Jesus. Trusting that his way is actually good news. His version of truth is the best thing for us. His version of power is the best thing for us. And so as you come to the front, there'll be folks up here and you'll take the bread, dip it in the cup, and they'll say, the body of Jesus broken for you. And as you dip it in the cup, they'll say, the blood of Jesus shed for you. And maybe this morning you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not sure about this Jesus thing with truth and power. You got a whole bunch of questions. I just want to say I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you've taken just the time and the courage that it takes to walk into a place like this with so much uncertainty and that you are welcome here. And for you, maybe you just want to still come up and the person up here will say a blessing over you or a prayer for you as you kind of journey through your own questions and your own desire to know more about Jesus. Now, we want to be a people that are here for those of us that have questions, that have doubts. And again, for the rest of us, again, we have an opportunity to remember the sacrifice of Jesus this morning. Why don't we stand and pray?